The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the available lines ahead of the college basketball tournament on the DraftKings Sportsbook app. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. In West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort. 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsibility. Responsible gaming resources. Where else would you rather be than right here, right Welcome to the Circling the Wagons podcast, a podcast discussing the Bills all year round with interviews, news, recaps, and insightful fan discussion. Most times, here's your host and lifelong Bills fan, Nate. Hey, Bills fans, welcome to another episode of Circling the Wagons, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Nate, and we have a lot to get into this episode, so let's jump right in. I'm going to give a few preseason thoughts on the Bills Lions game this past Friday. I'm going to announce the winner of the framed 8x10 end of drought graph Twitter contest and going to have the best of 2019 offseason and preseason of the Circling the Wagons podcast where basically I just compiled a bunch of clips of the best of the Circling the Wagons podcast or at least what I deem is the best of the Circling the Wagons podcast. You wouldn't think it'd be too long but it actually ended up being almost an hour and a half between clips from different podcasts we've done uh, with just myself or our normal co-hosts or interviews I've done with people such as Buffalo Bills defensive end Mike Love, Matthew Fairburn of The Athletic, Lindsey Darkangelo of The Athletic, Cam Meller of Pro Football Focus, Cal Trimble of Banged Up Bills. I mean, there's just a ton of people that we talk to and, and a ton of different topics we discuss. But let's just get right into it. Um, just wanted to give a few thoughts on the Bills winning, I guess, doesn't really matter. The Bills beat the Lions 24-20. And I did my always famous, well overplayed and annoying things that I'm looking for in the preseason game. And of course, like six or seven of them are no injuries. And then I do something different. Like I think this week I did, I want to see Steven Hauschka make a bleeping field goal, right? Because <laughs> he's, uh, he's been so inconsistent this preseason, but he of course made it. Uh, he had his only, he was one for one, 43 yard field goal, and then he made both extra points. But anyways, um, I always say that I don't want any injuries because it's the only thing that truly matters in this preseason. And I swear it felt like it was the beginning of saving private Ryan during that game. I, I don't know if you guys, I'm sure you guys have seen saving private Ryan. Well, it reminded me of the scene where the guys are coming into those boats or they're taking those boats into storm the beaches of Normandy. And as soon as that boat door opens, they're just getting berated by 
machine gun bullets. And it was just like that for us in a football sense or an injury sense because Frank Gore went down with an injury from a late hit on the sidelines. And then all of a sudden, Bill's starting left guard, Quentin Spain, went down. He gets carted off. Levi Wallace leaves the game. Tredavious White leaves the game. And all of a sudden, I'm just like, oh, my God, just just take everyone out. Just take everyone out. We can't afford any more injuries. We don't need it. especially when you saw guys from the Lions like Jerron Davis, uh, starting linebacker go down with an injury and the the Lions starting center go down with an injury and for some reason those guys were both carted off and it didn't sound like they were uh, season-ending injuries even though they looked like it so after those five or six or seven major injuries on both sides of the ball I really just wanted <laughs> McDermott to just pull everyone just pull everyone it doesn't matter anymore we've taken too many losses but luckily um, based on Kyle Trimble's article on buffalorumblings.com i'm thinking we're going to see a lot of those guys back for week one let's hope we all are going to and speaking of injuries or potential injuries last week on the podcast i noted that there will be two things that i'm watching for in josh allen for this preseason and the regular season and the first thing is sliding or getting out of bounds while running and not taking big hits and the second thing is when josh allen can't find anyone open he throws it out of bounds instead of across his body, 40 yards downfield, a.k.a. hero ball, which is basically just a ball that ends up in the safety's arms because he's completely just waiting for it. It ends up with the interception. So, so far in the preseason, Josh Allen has been doing really well at avoiding both of those things. I mean, he's only done, what, a quarter and a half up until this point, but I was very impressed because I think that's a big step in the direction of becoming a franchise quarterback. Now, like I mentioned last week, there's a a ton of different things that have to be inserted into that. Also, obviously, you want more passing touchdowns, less interceptions, better completion percentage, all of that stuff, more wins, obviously. But those are two things I'll be watching for Josh Allen this, this preseason and regular season. And he basically failed at both of those things within the first quarter. He slid he did not slide while running out of the pocket and could could have potentially taken a huge hit he did not luckily but it wasn't because the guys weren't trying to hit him they were definitely trying to hit him he just all of a sudden you know he just got lucky anyway so he failed in that and then because going back to the injury situation which i mentioned earlier we can't potentially make the playoffs unless josh allen is starting for us so he really needs to avoid taking those unnecessary hits. I don't care if it's unless it's third and eight in the game and the game is on the line and you need to dive for that extra yard to get the first down. That's the only time I want you doing that because otherwise I could give a crap. I don't want you I don't want you putting your unnecessarily exposing your body to those major hits by linebackers, defensive linemen, anyone. I mean, just look at Carson Wentz a few years ago. He dove into the end zone while running to score a touchdown to win a game. And then he was out for the rest of the season with an ACL tear. Wait, but then the Eagles won the Super Bowl that year with Nick Foles. So maybe that's not the best example, but you get you get the idea. And the second thing I mentioned was not throwing the famous hero ball across his body downfield, which he absolutely did in the first quarter. And it was intercepted. And the only reason why it wasn't a didn't end up being an interception is because there was a questionable roughing the passer call against Josh Allen. But again, I was really hoping he would throw that out of bounds. Um, 
and he didn't. So that was one of those are basically the two major takeaways that I had were the injuries and Josh Allen doing a call. Oh yeah. And then there's also this thing about Corey Borhorquez punting. And I don't know if you guys caught that, but my feelings on Corey Borhorquez are as follows. The worst. I mean, he was just that bad. He was, he was bad enough that I actually missed Matt Darr. The, the, well, okay. I didn't miss Matt Dark because he was awful, but I miss Colton Schmidt. I don't know why we don't have Colton Schmidt on the team, uh, competing against Corey Bohorquez and Corey Carter. And uh, I mean, I would take Brian Mormon. Can, can we get Brian Mormon out of retirement, please? <laughs> is there any way we could do that? So, uh, special teams, I mean, the punting is questionable. And, um, I'm really hoping that that somehow gets upgraded by the regular season. Or we bring in someone. I know there's been chatter about bringing in the punter from the Patriots that just got let go. I'm all for that. I don't care. We need we need an upgrade at the position. So I really had this uh, nice long email sent from Paul in the UK about Christian Wade and, and rugby and the subtle differences for it. And I really appreciate, Paul, you writing in and telling me the differences. Basically, he helped set me straight because last week I had mentioned that Rugby is basically kill the carrier, and I, of course, like an American, I simplified things completely, made it black and white, and he set me straight and had this really long, well-thought-out email. I was going to read some of it, but between the best of the 2019 podcast and all of those clips and the fact that Christian Wade didn't get one snap on Friday night, I don't even know if it's worth talking about. So I'm going to go right into—so thanks, Paul. Thanks for sending me that email. I appreciate it. It did not go unnoticed. But I'm going to announce the framed 8x10 end of drought graph Twitter contest, which if you retweeted and followed us, you were eligible to win this item. And there was about, what, 100 retweets? And the winner is—okay, I just put it into this random generator. The winner is— at CNY underscore Metro 96. So congratulations to that person. Please DM us your address and we'll send you the 8x10 frame. Hopefully you're in the United States, the lower 48. Based on your Twitter handle, at CNY Central New York, I'm guessing. So I should be able to send it to you. DM me your address. And like I said, as part of this contest, you had to listen to this podcast to find the winner. So I'm not going to be a complete jerk with it about it. I'm going to tag you in this tweet when I tweet out the podcast. I'm not going to tell you that you won. You had to. Be, you have to be listening to this podcast. That's the whole point of this, right? So before I go into... The best of 2019 preseason, offseason, Circling the Wagons podcast. I'm going to give a quick T Public plug and let everyone know that we have a bunch of new Buffalo Bills designs on our T Public store for shirts, coffee mugs, anything you want to anything you want to buy, flags, artwork on your wall, um, even this eight by ten end of drought graph you can find as as wall art. That you can purchase for your house. You can buy an 8x10, you can get an 11x17 or whatever, 24x36, whatever you want. Three words for you. Treat, yo, sell. So uh, check out that store. It's tpublic.com slash stores slash ctwpod. That's tpublic.com slash stores slash ctwpod. Now, I hope you guys have a chance to sit back and listen. I am going to play all of the best clips of uh, the Circling the Wagons podcast. Enjoy, and we'll talk to you guys next week.
Ryan Talbot from NewYorkUpstate.com. I really think that that elbow injury that he suffered against the Texans was a blessing in disguise because when he came back from that, the game looked like it had uh, slowed down significantly for him. He obviously learned when he was on the sidelines from uh, Derek Anderson. Uh, When Matt Barkley was brought in, I think that he learned a lot from Barkley as well. So when he was brought back that second stint after his injury, he had some really good games where, yeah, maybe you wanted to see him pass more rather than run because a a lot of his best plays in this second stint were with his feet. But he still made a lot of impressive throws as well. Uh, There were still a few interceptions where you said, okay, he had no business throwing that ball. He really shouldn't have done it. But it's a rookie quarterback trying to make plays for his team. And and in some of those cases, uh, for example, against the Patriots, you know, they were playing from behind. And those are the types of plays where I think he'll learn from it and say, okay, this is the pros. Like you can't play hero ball in the pros and make those types of throws because the defenders are simply too good and they'll be there to intercept them every time. Okay. So we mentioned offseason needs and you talked about offensive line and wide receiver. I mean, are those the two biggest needs and are there any other needs that this team needs to look at in 2019? So yeah, definitely offensive line, especially on the offensive side of the ball. Wide receiver, I would say is number two. Um, you, you know, you can obviously make an argument for tight end. The good news for the bills is this is the, t- uh, deepest tight end draft that I can probably remember. Uh, I would say at least maybe in the last decade, at least on paper, there's some really, really good tight ends that could fall to those middle rounds of the draft the bills, obviously, if they want to in the first two or three rounds, though, if they want to go out and get a guy, then they could get a really good uh, talent as well, but you, you need some time to let tight ends develop for whatever reason they seem to need a really long or at least a few seasons I should say to develop in the NFL defensive side of the ball I'm going to say that the defensive line is probably the area that uh, needs the most work because Levi Wallace really emerged in uh, at the end of the year when he first well I should say when he first got the opportunity to play so I don't think cornerback number two is necessarily a priority anymore I think they had a veteran to compete for the job and you know give Wallace a chance to win it uh, in the offseason, I think your linebackers are pretty well set. I would be surprised if Lorenzo Alexander doesn't return for one more year. Uh, Thomas Davis maybe is in the cards as a depth and rotation type guy with Carolina kind of saying they're not bringing him back this year. But on the defensive line, you need to replace Kyle Williams. And yeah, Jordan Phillips says that he feels he could do it. And Harrison Phillips probably feels like he could do a lot more in, in a bigger role. But in this year's draft class, if you're, it's especially deep on defense in the first round. So if they're pick, sitting there at pick nine and a guy like Ed Oliver's on the board, they'd be foolish to pass on him. Oliver's a guy that can stop the run, but he can also get after the quarterback. So a lot has been made about the Bills Stadium as they sent a survey out recently to fans asking about stadium renovations versus a new stadium being built. Um, what are your thoughts and which makes the most sense to you? Well, that's a good question. You know, I, I'm kind of I have mixed feelings on it because I've always known the stadium to be uh, in Orchard Park. And I've always, you know, I've, I still call it the Ralph, uh, even though it's New Era Field now. But uh, there's only so many renovations you can make at, at a place like that. And, and yes, there are things they could do there. But I, I think that they're going to start leaning towards a downtown stadium. That's just my hunch. Um, I just think it makes sense with the way that the team, you know, the Pagulas have already invested a lot in downtown Buffalo. I just think it makes sense for them to put a stadium down there as well. And, and I know some fans are concerned about traffic and, and 
I, I'm sure that it wouldn't be ideal. I'm sure it might take longer to exit the stadium if it wasn't downtown Buffalo. But this is still Buffalo, New York. This is not a place where you're going to be waiting there for hours on end or anything like that, like you do in these bigger cities uh, that, that have NFL teams. Um, I, I do think that the Pagulas might even lean towards the stadium downtown because it would kind of uh, curb tailgating um, and probably make fans lean towards going places downtown before games if they wanted to do something. And, and that might kind of... Um, lead to fewer videos on uh, <laughs> on Twitter <laughs> and been, on yeah. social media sites. So at the end of the day, I, I we'll wait and see because I, I think the, the Pagoulas really do want to hear from the fans. That doesn't mean they're going to let the fans make the decision for them. Mm-hmm. But when all is said and done, I, I'm, I just have this hunch that they're going to go with the downtown stadium. The firings of offensive line coach Juan Castillo and special teams coach Danny Crossman. Um, so him and the offensive line coach Juan Castillo were fired this past week, and, and a lot of people were talking about how it kind of seems unfair that they would fire the wide receivers and offensive line coach because they had so little talent on either side of that. Plus, um, they dedicated the least amount of money to both positions in the league. So um, one thing I will say, so I did a little bit of stats research. And the Bills' receiving yardage this past season was ranked 31st in the NFL with 2,794 yards, right? So terrible, second worst in the league. But um, the Bills ranked 29th in the league in yards by wide receivers specifically, not including tight ends or, or running backs. So that's kind of a, an important distinction. So they ranked 29th in the league by uh, in yards by wide receivers, and they ranked 31st in the league in receptions by wide receivers. So... Um, the offensive line coach, as far as Juan Castillo goes, um, the Bills ranked 21st in yards per carry in 2018 at 4.2 yards per carry, which you're thinking, oh, that's not terrible, right? I mean, it's better than I thought it was. Well, I did a little bit of research into this, and the Bills actually ranked second in the league in quarterback rushing yards with 677 on 103 attempts. Um, and actually, Allen had um, 7.1 yards per carry, right? So that's a pretty high number. So if you look at that number, um, I, I was like, well, if his number is 7.1 yards per carry and their overall is 4.2 yards per carry, what is the actual running back number, right? For, for the, for how the bills did successfully in the run game. Well, the bills would have had 3.6 yards per carry and rank, um, 32nd in the league at that. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah. Even, Brutal. yeah, even below Arizona at 3.8 yards per carry. Now, I was like, well, you know, you, if I do it that way, I kind of take away all quarterback rushing, right? So Josh Allen, we know, is a good running quarterback. Well, let's let's see what would have happened if I gave them like an average quarterback, right? An average quarterback with the average amount of carries and the average amount of yardage, right? And if I did the same thing and I gave that team that much, it went from 3.6 yards per carry to 3.7 yards per carry as a team. Mm-hmm. So still worst in the league, still not good, and that would kind of explain why... Juan Castillo was probably let go. Now, they did have a, a lot less talent in offensive line, but um, but even last season with um, Incognito and Wood, it was still a, a step back from even when the Rex Ryan regime is set as that since. Anthony Lynn, when he was the offensive coordinator. So I think that's the main reason why those guys got fired. Um, special teams coach Danny Crossman, who has been on the wall of shame for what, like at least four or five weeks this season for us. Um, He was let go this last season as a surprise to pretty much no one, really. Um, Anyone that watches Bill's games um, 
just saw a lot of ineptitude on that side of the ball. And I think it's safe to say that botched fake field goal attempts, blocked kicks, missed field goals, and muffed punts uh, won't be a weekly occurrence on game day. Other news within the AFC East is that now that the, the Super Bowl is done, the Dolphins have hired um, Patriots, Patriots ex-linebacking coach Brian Flores as the Dolphins' new head coach. And I guess I'll just open that real quick up for discussion. I mean, I, should Bills fans be worried about that hire now that he just came from you know, a team that limited the Los Angeles Rams to only three points in the Super Bowl? Over the last 20 years, the Bills fans should be rejoicing about that, right? Because every coordinator that leaves Belichick is pedestrian at best over the last 20 years, right? Yeah, dude. It's great for us. I, I, I mean, was psyched. Eric yeah. Mangini, right? Uh, Josh McDaniels left and came back, then left and changed his mind. Romeo Cornell, like all these guys. Charlie Weiss. It was Jim Schwartz. Uh Cornell. Yeah. I yeah. mean, everybody is billed as like these geniuses, but in the end, it always turns out that it was Belichick all along. Yeah, he's always been the mastermind behind all of this, and they all think that he can be... There's only going to be one Belichick. I think we can safely say that. There's only going to be one guy that's ever this great at his job, and guys that that have... Uh, you know, even I've I heard, even heard the argument that Bill Parcells wasn't the head coach he was without Bill Belichick as his defensive coordinator. You know, so I mean, and I'm, I'm kind of agreeing with that because how many Super Bowls did Bill Parcells win versus, you know, with with or without Bill Belichick as defensive coordinator? He shut down the Buffalo Bills K-Gun offense in Super Bowl 25, and he, and he also just shut down. I mean, it was his coaching that shut down the Los Angeles Rams, which was the second highest scoring offense in the NFL this last season to three points. So, yeah, I agree. There's been I don't think there's been any coordinator that has become a successful head coach since. Yeah, I was happy about this. I, let's be honest. Like, it, I think you and I, we, we were texting each other. This was a great hire for us as Bills fans. We're, look at Matt Patricia. He hasn't done shit in the long. No, he like, inherited a 9-7 and seven Lions team with Matt Stafford. It was total regression. Yeah, terrible. It's a great It's a great demonstration of the Peter Principle. You remember that? We've talked about that before. Um, but Peter Principle states that a person who is competent at their job will keep earning a promotion to a more senior position, which requires different skills. So ultimately, everybody rises to the level of their incompetence, right? So Belichick is a good head coach, but he's got all these people below him that that keep rising, right? You hear all the time, oh, he started off as the defensive backs coach and then was the line coach and, and then he's he's the defensive coordinator, or he, or he's not. He's the interim defensive coordinator, he's, but he's calling plays. And like they keep rising and they're doing well and rising, and then they're not given the head coaching opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. Until you give them that shot, and then it's revealed that it's above their level of competence. Yeah, because it, it requires completely different skill set. They a good job with that. They they don't promote you until you're already doing the work of of what you would be promoted to, <laughs> and have threatened to leave to go to a competitor. <laughs> Remember the Peter Principle, like, you're probably incompetent at your job. (laughs) This week in Bill's History. All right, this week in Bill's History. This is courtesy of At Buff Sports History. Uh, On February 3rd, on this date, 1991, Jim Kelly named Pro Bowl MVP as the AFC defeats the NFC 23-21. Kelly threw for two scores 
including one to Andre Reed and one to Ernest Givens. With under two minutes remaining in the game, a total of 10 Bills players were represented in the game. Nice. Nice, thanks. Yeah, can, you, can you name the 10 Bills players? Oh, can I name the 10 Bills players? Okay. That's insane, by the way, that there were 10 Bills players in the Pro Bowl, you know, looking back at it. Um, I'm sure we could name at least seven or eight, right, Mike? I don't know, Nate. <laughs> Mike's just done with his podcast already. He heard me, like, closing it. He's just like, I'm fucking out, man. Um, okay, so obviously we have Jim Kelly. That's one. Um, Daryl Talley. Bruce, Bruce Smith. Bruce Smith. Andre Reed. Thurman Thomas, right? Yep. Ken Hall. That's four. Yep. Five. That's five. Um James Lofton. Um, I don't see Lofton's name. Um, <laughs> you take a guess. Steve Tasker. Tasker seven. Shit. Um, Mark Kelso. <clears throat> nope. Eh, uh, I was just throwing that away so Nate didn't feel bad. <laughs> Cornelius Bennett. Yes. Yes, that's eight, right? Um, two more to go. One on offense, one on defense. Bryce Pop. No, that's no. That's too early for that. Too early. Um, one on offense, one on defense. Offense has got to be another lineman, right? Yep. I don't think there's another, unless it was Don B. Um, ah, who was it? Oh, jeez, it wasn't Ken Hall. Who else was a great? Will Wolford? Yes. Yes. Mike, you got the 10th one? Who? <laughs> <laughs> Pro Bowl uh, guard slash tackle slash offensive lineman. I don't know what he played. Will Wolford. <laughs> Um, defense. So one guy left on defense, Mike. It wouldn't be Nate Clemens. No, I think it's too early for that. Okay. Um, a corner though. Yeah. No. A defensive back. No. All right. So it's a maybe a linebacker, D lineman, linebackers. We already got two of them. Um, Can you name the third. <laughs> is it a linebacker? Uh huh. They don't tell it. Cornelius Bennett. Geez, do they have a third good one? Not Carlton Bailey. No. Who the heck was? Was it Shane Conlon? Yep. All right. Wow. Gee, that's amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. No, not you. The oh. fact that they had 10. Oh. <laughs> wow. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's also cool. Yeah. Kyle Trimble from bangedupbills.com. Okay, no, let's go on to Trent Murphy. Because mm-hmm. Trent Murphy was coming off a major knee injury two seasons ago. And this last season, he dealt with a myriad of other issues like ankle and groin issues. Were they all separate issues or a result of his knee injury? Uh, I think they're all tied back in the knee injury. Now, the torn ACL and the recovery wasn't causing that stuff. But because he wasn't quite in football shape, I mean, even though he did rehab for a solid year, you heard how much he was squatting. I think they said he was doing 400 pounds at one point. Uh, in like May afterward, um, he still wasn't in football shape. I mean, you lose a, a year of sports specific activity. It still takes time to get back into it. You just don't jump in. I mean, you saw guys like Adrian Pearson just dominate afterward. Yeah. Well, Adrian Pearson's still dominating when, you know, most running backs are supposed to be, mm-hmm. you know, dead and gone. So he's the exception. Um, but Trent Murphy and along a lot of other guys just take the extra year to get back because you've lost year because of the injury you rehab and then you're trying to get back up to that incredibly high level of play. You know, if Trent Murphy was just trying to go bike and run, you know, just normal activities, he'd have been back to normal. But since he has to go back to NFL related activities, it just takes longer. Um, 
you know, it's not even so much a healing thing. It's just getting that technique back down. So when he's asking his body to do more and more and more, it just wasn't reacting how he was used to or the, how that, how it needed to be. And then as a result of those injuries, um, he did have some injuries that just kind of, you know, uh, wrong place, wrong time. I think he got hit uh, one of the weeks. I think during the Colts game, he missed a few weeks because some guy ran into his knee. Well, hey, sprained knee, it happens, but mm-hmm. it groin stuff and some of the ankle stuff. It's like, well, you work with what you got and try to get back into it. Mm-hmm. So, do you think he pushed it too much in his rehab, or do you think that was just it? Just it just is one of those issues. It just went south, and there's nothing you can do about it. I think it just went south, uh, and not a whole lot you can do about it. I mean, you could tell he was trying to get back out there. It wasn't like he was just saying, I got another contract. I'm good to go. You heard his work ethic. Mm-hmm. If you read the, uh, I think Athletic made a great article uh, back at the beginning of the season of how, you know, he pushed himself. So I don't think he's just going to show up and just get a paycheck like uh, some other former Bills did, like uh, Marcel Darius. Mm-hmm. However, um, I just think that uh, it was just a lot of bad luck with Trent Murphy. And one thing I've noticed is some people start talking about him being a cap casualty. Uh, my two thoughts are is why are we talking about cap casualties? We have so much space. Mm-hmm. He showed that he can play at a high level and he's going to get better after another year. And I, I just, I just don't see them the need to cut him. He was better than what we had out there most of the time. So, you know, hopefully he just gets back over that hump where he's not dealing with the health issues uh, that he was last year. So, I mean, as a Bills fan watching this from a distance and not having the injury knowledge that you have, obviously, you know, you you hear about the season-ending injury and then him having another season full of injuries. I mean, do you think he'll be 100% this year without any setbacks? Or is could he be a player that's quote-unquote injury-prone? Uh, I think coming in this season, he's he's going to let everything heal back up and then he's going to come back in hopefully 100%. And of course, we never fully know what kind of injuries these guys are dealing with you know even minor ones that can become chronic or whatever but um you know with how much money these guys are making i would hope that they're spending the appropriate amount of money to get themselves as ready as they can be because their bodies are their job Mm -hmm. uh so i I assume that he's going to get do whatever he can to get as healthy as he can i think rest is just a big portion of that um but i think 2019 Trent Murphy is going to uh, start turning some heads because he's going to finally be have a year under football underneath his belt after being out the year before that. And then he's going to just really know how to ramp up and do the, you know, the defense because he's going to do the calls. And I think he's going to turn a lot of heads. I, I, I don't think that Bill's mafia should give up on him just yet. Do you think Trent Murphy could be quote unquote injury prone? And what do you think about that term in general? That was that was bad luck. There was no injury prone about that. It was just a bad hit, and you know they started noticing something's going south, and you can't do anything more. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, somebody that's not warming up and doing what they need to do and chronically getting hamstring issues. Well, you know that could be well if you're not warming up properly, if you're not stretching, if you're not strengthening, then you could be considered injury prone. But mm-hmm. I just like not to use the term altogether injury prone. Gotcha. Just I'm not a fan of it. Gotcha. All right, we'll strike that from the podcast. <laughs> The first day of free agency for the Bills. The second signing of the day. The second signing I did not see coming whatsoever. And it was started um, to be reported by Mike Roffalo of uh, NFL Network, I believe, where um, uh, old, I, I, I should say ancient running back. The guy's still a beast, though. But 35-year-old running back Frank Gore signed with the Bills um, for a reported uh, one-year, $2 million deal. Now, I don't know about you guys. But I, when when thinking about the Bills roster in general, you have 
There's Sean McCoy, who's 30 years old. You have Chris Ivory, that's 30 years old. You have Marcus Murphy, who's a very young guy. Um, he's only been in the league for a couple of, a couple of seasons, so we have some youth there. But I guess the the thought was the thought was that it would be um, someone with I don't know someone with more youth than Frank Gore. Who did did that signing catch you guys off guard? Yeah, I didn't expect it either. Uh, um, you know, well, no matter what you think about running backs, right? Their age, like it, it's statistical outlier to have the the Bills to have the top three oldest. It's not like the, the the number one oldest, the number two oldest. It's the top three. And Gore, by such a wide margin, too, right? Like Chris Ivory is number two on the list at 30 years old, and Frank Gore is 35. It's over five years difference. That's crazy. That's true. That, uh, well, there's two things, too, to take into account. Like, at least Gore, like he, his presence is going to be, I think, really good for the younger players on the team, um, kind of a, more of a leader. Uh, a role type of player. He's not going to start. Um, obviously, McCoy is the starter. And then also, I think they might have gotten him a little bit because of his ability to pass protect, something where I think Marcus Murphy might have been a, a bit of a liability last season. I still I still definitely think they should draft a guy. Uh, obviously, not in the, in, the, in the first few rounds or whatever, but they should draft a guy at some point, maybe on, on the second or third day, um, and, and bring him up. You guys know my thoughts on on tight ends, right? About how many years it takes to develop, right? Or is this new? I don't know if I've mentioned this on a podcast. Let me guess. <laughs> Three years. <laughs> so I four. Oh, close. John's John's right on this one. It's actually five. Five. It actually is five years. So um, I read. You this. know the average player is in the NFL three, right? I uh, no, no, I didn't know that. So that sounds about right. But. Uh, <laughs> Um, I read this book by Jonathan Bales, which is basically called Fantasy Football for Smart People. And uh, they talked about how how many years it takes um, every position from being drafted to make an impact statistically on an offense. So um, even though blocking will never be you know shown statistically as a receiver, it takes tight ends the longest to become statistically relevant in the NFL compared to college football. It's just for whatever reason, I think it has a lot to do with blocking schemes and route running, unlike other so if you look at all the all the really good tight ends in this league, like Travis Kelsey, Zach Ertz, all these guys took about four or five years to really make themselves known. It really is their second contract where they become relevant in the NFL. If they're going to be. Not not all these guys are going to be, but if they're going to be You're crazy, man. What about Gronkowski? I what think, about Aaron Hernandez? Aaron Hernandez was, I mean, killing people before then. You know what I mean? Like before his fifth year, yeah, yeah, literally, yeah. But, He'd already committed, yeah, and out of the league. <laughs> he and you still want him to like be learning blocking schemes? Like in today's world, is like produce in your rookie year. So yeah, and now leads to our our the pinnacle of free agency so far. This might be the biggest signing that the Bills have this season. Um, which is uh, something that um, if you guys listen to the Q&A Rumblings podcast with Matt Warren, he discussed this as the most important need for the Bills all offseason in free agency was to land a veteran center. And the Bills did that today. They signed former Kansas City Chiefs center Mitch Morse. And um, this, is a, this is a huge signing. He was listed as one of the top centers in the league. He's at a peak age. He's in the prime of his career. He's 26 years old. He's proven to be a superior pass protector. Um, he was the anchor for one of the league's most prolific offenses 
and considered one of the best free agent offensive linemen on the market. I mean, if you guys watched or even paid attention at least a little bit to the Kansas City Chiefs offense, I mean, he was great calling protections. I mean, this is the kind of guy that the Bills need at center and that they obviously didn't have last year with Russell Bodine or Ryan Groy, and they've really missed since Eric Wood's sudden retirement. Um, he's listed as six foot six, three hundred five pounds. He started forty nine, appeared in and started for forty nine games for the Chiefs. Um, Mitch Morris was graded as the thirteenth best center by Pro Football Focus in twenty eighteen. He's the seventh best center in pass blocking, the twentieth best in run blocking, and uh, he's he's just been great. I, and I think this is something that if you know we watch the Bills obviously every game last season, we talked a lot after every game and. You guys know how many times did it seem that the somebody would come up through the middle, get it looked like he was either unblocked or you know whatever. It was just it's different when quarterbacks have pressure around the edge for a defensive end or linebacker blitzing. It's one thing when they're up the middle and you know it basically leaves them unblocked and they're right in Josh Allen's face. It's it's a terrible thing for a rookie quarterback to go through and to learn from. You know. Mike, you bring up a good point about having to overpay for free agents, but I think that's just common. If you don't draft well, which this franchise has not done very well previous to the Brandon Bean, Sean, Sean McDermott era, you have to overpay for some of these spots where you have um, holes and you have this money that you have to spend. Like John said, we have at least four needs on the offensive line, and they've basically um, taken care of two of them with Spencer Long, um, possibly a guard. Mitch Morse definitely being the center and the anchor of this offense. Real quick, what do you guys think um, they should add, all things being equal, if they could add any position right now with some veteran presence, a position that the Bills have as a need, what what position would you guys hope that they uh, they sign a, a guy in to add to the roster that they haven't yet? Would How about it- wide receiver? We're ranked 31st in our positional spending. It's abysmal. That's what I was going to say, Mike. Actually, that's a really good one because I was going to say <laughs> wide receiver, man. The Bills definitely need wide receiver depth. I know John Brown is still out there. I know that Cole Beasley is still out there. I'm- Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Life moves pretty fast. Are you drinking water that can keep up? Smartwater Alkaline has everything you need to stay hydrated, no matter where your day takes you. Whether you're pitching a tent or your next big idea, Smartwater Alkaline can help you perform your best. It delivers a pure, crisp taste that makes it the perfect chaser after a big workout. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a Smart Water Alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you've found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Day 2 in the official start of free agency. Can you just clear up the narrative that players didn't want to come to Buffalo? You've got seven, eight guys in here in three days. Yeah, I'm trying to keep my words. That pissed me off, to be candid, because it was an ignorant comment or whatever. And I don't, you know, I'm not on social media, but um, if you live in Buffalo or you know anything about Buffalo, I mean, don't speak about Buffalo if you don't know what this city and what 
this fan base is like. I mean, it it really pissed me off, and uh, because it's not true. And when you talk to players, and it was not, how many guys flowed through here today? Eight, nine, whatever. Uh, and we could have had more. We didn't have that narrative. It was total started with a bad rumor on the whole Antonio Brown thing. People looking for reasons, um, and they didn't have all the facts. And um, to, again, people that have been here, I can't tell you how many players commented, this is amazing, this is awesome, what a facility, what a place, uh, what a culture, all that stuff that we have going here. And, you know, this city is, you know, we love it. And all I'm going to say is uh, anybody that says that doesn't know Buffalo and really is just speaking uh, out of ignorance. I don't know. I mean, surprise, I knew the Bills were going to be active. I didn't know that they'd be this active. And if you step back, you may say, well, boy, they didn't have many top-line moves. They made made splash moves. It's not like they signed Le'Veon Bell, but they signed Mitch Morris, gave him the uh, highest-paid center deal in the league, and that stood up even after Matt Paradis got a deal. They bring in Frank Gore, want to see how he can do with LaShawn McCoy, two 30-plus-year-old running backs in that backfield. Signed two wide receivers, agreed to two wide receivers, John Brown and Cole Beasley today, added a tight end in Tyler Croft, and then two offensive linemen in the last uh, couple of weeks here. So clearly trying to surround Josh Allen with weapons and protection. We'll see how it plays out. John Brown, that deep threat for Josh Allen to try to overthrow. See if he can run underneath it. I'm joined by my other co-host, John. John, how the hell are you, man? Nate, I am super excited. I can't wait to see what the Bills do next. Brandon Bean is a genius. Trust the process. Circle the wagons. Where else would you rather be? How you doing, Nate? <laughs> I'm doing good, man. I'm doing. Dude, there there was a lot of things in that intro that you just said. A lot of things, and I'm loving it, man. This is literally one of the most exciting times of the year as a Bills fan, and probably one of the most exciting off seasons we've ever had. I mean, if you think about it, first off, like, bro, I love talking to you in general. Any time I get to talk to you, at least twice. In one week is is rare, but it's it's welcome. This is good. It's good always talk, talking bills with your friends. I'm sure everyone listening is talking bills with their buddies, um, their relatives, uh, people at the water cooler. It's just it's just a fun, exciting time. Um, there's a lot of things we're gonna get to in this podcast. Um, one of the things that I wanted to mention um, is the bills in the last three four days have been filling a lot of holes on their roster. And frankly, these are a lot of holes that, if you were paying attention, they were here last offseason as well. Things like wide receivers, things like O-line, and then they were holes up until now, I feel. So this is a this is a great time. And John, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, I think one of the reasons why this free agency period has been so much fun for us and has been so exciting and has been, you know, such a source of optimism for Bills fans is that... The Bills haven't lost any key players as free agency. I mean, how rare is that? Usually when you take on, you know, a lot of players or you're building depth or you're signing some starters, you always leave like, oh, well, we lost our star defensive end or, oh, we lost, you know, our star offensive tackle, but not this year. Today we're going to go over um, wide receiver John Brown, wide receiver Cole Beasley, offensive tackle Ty Nsecki, offensive guard John Feliciano, and uh, kick returner Andre Roberts. So now... We have two wide receivers that have speed. You have second-year wide receiver Robert Foster, who came on really well um, late in the season last year. And now you have a veteran presence on the other side that can really stretch the field and really you know, keep defenses from, um, 
from really keying in on certain parts of the, of the Bills' offense. So you have two solid guys, a guy in Cole Beasley, a guy with experience, more veteran presence even than John Brown being in the league for uh, for seven years. So I was happy with that signing. John, what do you think about giving Josh Allen a reliable uh, slot receiver? I think it's great. I think he's going to help out a ton, um, especially on some some of the more short to medium passes. Um, it's um, you know looking at their receiving core, the top four at the moment, no particular order. You have Brown, Beasley, Robert Foster, Zay Jones. Yeah, you know one of the good things about having um, Cole Beasley on the roster is it allow and, and especially John Brown in, in the speed receiver area is it allows guys with younger or less experience like Robert Foster to still develop. He doesn't have to play all the snaps. So one thing I'll say about that is if you have a, a, a decent enough, enough wide receiver core, sometimes you don't, and, and a good enough quarterback, of course, you don't need to have, you know, a, a number one stud wide receiver. I mean, just look at the Patriots all these years. Now, Tom Brady is a different animal in itself, but I mean, he just never really had a true number one wide receiver, except for like maybe Randy Moss, you know, 10 years ago. But they've thrived with, you know, uh, a slot receiver like Julian Edelman, like Cole Beasley. He's basically like the Cole Beasley of the Bills right now. And then they had Josh Gordon. But even so, they didn't use Josh Gordon to the extent that you would expect a number one wide receiver. You know, they've always had a reliable tight end and Gronk. So I think, you know, if, if if the guy's good, you know, the quarterback will be able to find a way to get all these guys involved. I mean, just think about, for example, before Michael Thomas came to the Saints, I mean, Drew Brees never had a number one wide receiver for a long time really you know so he had jimmy graham for a bit he had all these other guys he's still passing for five thousand yards every season so i i I agree that you could have a number one wide receiver that really that stud guy that's just a calvin johnson like guy but there's just so few of them in the nfl that i think that if you can't get a guy like that then i think the bills are, are going about it the right way yeah it's nice it's nice when the bills actually have money to pay people see what a difference this free agency is than last free agency when they're hamstrung by the cap the next signing that the bills have made in free agency which was kind of cool uh we didn't really talk about this on the podcast no one was, was really discussing this position as a need but it definitely is a need is kicker turner the Bills signed former jets and former raiders kicker turner andre roberts um to the bills roster so that was pretty cool um I specifically remember, John, and I know we did a recap of this. If you guys are are new to our podcast, we do a recap every Sunday after the Bills game. And I remember, I don't know if it was a first or second Jets game, where Andre Roberts just torched the Bills special teams (laughs) twice for great field position. I don't think he got the touchdown, but he went deep into Bills territory a few times. So, I mean, how nice is it to have a guy on this team uh, that has that potential ability to return kickoffs and, and punts for touchdowns in, in a position where the Bills really haven't had a guy like that in a while. Well, well to be fair, I, I think a lot of teams um, scorched the Bills special teams last year. <laughs> Almost every one of them, to be honest. Yeah, That's fair. But uh, no, you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it was definitely a need that a lot of us overlooked when we were talking about the upcoming free agency and the draft. I think it's a great signing. He led the league last year in uh, average punt return yards. He, he combined for five punt and kick returns for touchdowns over the last four seasons, and he did that with three different teams. Um, one thing I, f- I forgot to mention uh, with, with Cole Beasley and John Brown, things that I, I love um, following the pro football focus on Buffalo Bills' Twitter account, and I love when they talk about just the Buffalo Bills in general, either players that they've signed or drafted or during the season. It's a really good account. 
And uh, as, as far as John Brown goes, and they, they mentioned in 2018, Brown was targeted 20-plus yards downfield 28 times, the seventh most, which accounted for 30.8% of his targets. Um, and then with Cole Beasley, they said it, since 2015, when lined up in the slot, Beasley ranks as, as sixth in targets with 140, eighth in yards with 15, 1,500, and fourth in first downs gained. So pro football focus really loves the Buffalo Bills signings. Um, in fact, they uh, I retweeted this today that the pro football focus gave the early winners of the free agency period to the Buffalo Bills between Cole Beasley and John Brown, which I just mentioned, but also with Tyler Croft and Frank Gore. So they had really high grades on all those guys. So just in general, so we talk a lot about the the Bills signings, the free agents, our thoughts on them. But one thing I, I really like is that I asked this last year on the podcast after the Bills free agent signings and after the Bills traded Tyrod and Cordy Glenn. And I, I feel like I have to ask this question again in this this year's free agency period. Is Brandon being a wizard? I mean, it's just like, you know, how nice is it to have a GM that actually feels competent as opposed to this? To win in this business, it's about two things. It's about players and winning. So I was thinking, though, as far as Dodo Beckham Jr. trade and, and the New York Giants, that I am so glad that we have Brandon Bean as our general manager and not Dave Gettleman. And part of me wonders because, yeah, because Bean was the assistant GM while Gettleman was the GM in Carolina, was Bean the force behind some of the Panthers' major success? Because as the way it goes right now with those two separated and in different franchises, it doesn't seem to be the other way around that Gettleman was the reason why the Panthers got to the Super Bowl or the reason why they had built up so much talent on their roster. I, I'm starting to think, I don't, I can't say this for sure, but I would wonder if Bean was just looking to get out of Gettleman's shadow to actually run a franchise the way he's doing it in a judicious way yeah that's very interesting i i i the thought had crossed my mind i'm glad you brought it up um yeah it's a very interesting point yeah i'm just gonna say it's a fact it's a fact right now brandon bean <laughs> is a much better gm than dave kettleman <laughs> so i just wanted to um thank everyone by the way real quick did you guys know that you could purchase twitter poll votes like for anything did you know that you had the ability to do that pay money to do that you can pay money. You can do anything with money, Nate. Anything. <laughs> Give me an example. What else? Could we get a million downloads for this podcast for $660? Have you ever seen a, a video of a click farm in China? No. Oh. Is that what it's... Is don't that look it up. <laughs> I don't want to tell you. <laughs> is it basically you can like... purchase? You can purchase likes, upvotes, oh, really? hearts, oh. whatever you want, uh, downloads, whatever. They have whole, like, a gi giant warehouses of people just on computers, or they have complete walls of cell phones set up and, auto like, will automatically navigate to your thing and upvote, right? It's like a, like a robotic arm that wow. swipes down through the rows of cell phones. Jeez. Mm -hmm. Upvoting. Wow. So one of the big topics that I want to bring up that I didn't, I never thought I would ever bring up on our podcast was um, the NFL on Fox did a Twitter fan poll bracket. Now this was just part of, you know, it's one of those lame things that like, you know, just different sites or different people try to play on March madness by doing their own form of a bracket, whether it's, you know, 
um, here's the Halloween candy bracket or, you know, uh, I don't know, dessert bracket or I don't know why I can only think of food, but <laughs> just that sort of dumb you know, way of, of somehow getting their name in, in, in social media or whatever. So NFL, on, by the way, can we all agree that the NFL on Fox is like second or third rate at football coverage on TV? I don't think anybody particularly does it well. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. John is so elitist. <laughs> Why do they still use that robot like 20 years later? Max, man, we're all the rage in 1994, I think. <laughs> I don't know. So they basically did this like 32 team. There's obviously 32 teams in the NFL. They did a 32 team um, fan bracket. And I just kind of followed from the sidelines. And then all of a sudden, you know, a lot of the members of Bill Mafia started tweeting our official Twitter account. Um, by the way, if you follow us on Twitter, um, or if you don't follow us on Twitter, you should. We're at CTW pod. It's circling the wagons pod. And um, all of a sudden, you know, you know, I would retweet. Things like, oh, you know, vote for us. We're going against the Seahawks. We're going against the Saints. We ended up beating the Saints somehow, you know, just by like percent, like a like decimal percentage points. I'm like, all right, I'm into this. Like, we made the Final Four. Like, I think we're the best fan base. We were in the the same uh, bracket as uh, the Titans. We ended up facing the Titans, and on the other side, it was um, the Browns versus like the Bears. I believe the Browns versus the Bears. So two other great franchises, the Bills versus the Titans. I'm like, oh, the Bills are easily going to win this one. And then all of a sudden, with 12 minutes left, um, the Bills were up 53% over the Titans at 47%. And then within seconds... All of a sudden, the poll flipped. It was all of a sudden the Bills were losing 46% to the Titans winning 54% with 12 minutes left. Whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. How did that happen? (laughs) Like we were going to easily win this. Um, and then all of a sudden, we ended up losing in the last uh, last few minutes. So um, conspiracy happened through talking with different people in Twitter. Sal Capaccio tweeted this, that an actual Titans fan, not a player or anything with or any like anyone of note, but a Titans fan ended up buying 20,000 Twitter votes for $660. So I'm just going to let that sink in for a, a second that somebody... Not not anyone rich. I, don't, I have no idea what this guy's financial, but I can't imagine for the most part, for most of us, that six hundred and sixty dollars is worth spending for twenty thousand votes to win a stupid Twitter fan poll on NFL on Fox. Because I tweeted, I tweeted this guy back. I'm like, dude, I don't like spending six hundred and sixty dollars on stuff I have to spend money on, like food or gas or whatever. <laughs> and and I, I can't believe that you would do that. So. <laughs> Senior content manager from Pro Football Focus, Cam Meller. Absolutely. So, you know, you were saying about your needs earlier with cornerback, um, edge rusher, and tight end. Now, some Bills fans and the Bills Mafia might argue that wide receiver should be on that list. Um, could you let the listeners know why you don't see wide receiver as that big of a need? Yes. Yeah, so it's, I think the additions that they have are going to be suitable. And, and we've, we've got a lot of data on Zay Jones. And so I think we still are, we're still holding on hope for Zay, mm-hmm. but I think going forward, it's, it's the addition of Brown and Beasley number one and number two there. I think Brown on the outside and you have Beasley in the slot. It's, you have three capable, maybe, you know, receivers that are going to be there. And with the cornerbacks on roster, now you have two signings that aren't necessarily going to be, you know, we're not sure what you're going to get out of them. You know what you're getting with Brown and Beasley and Jones and, mm-hmm. and that, 
aspect of receiving. I still, if I were to put receiver on the team's list, I would actually slide receiver now maybe into that third spot where tight end was after mm-hmm. Croft has been signed. But mm-hmm. I still would say cornerback is more more important and more bigger a bigger need. Um, but then Metcalf too, you know, I'd say nobody else dominated the combine quite like he did and took took it by storm with how he ran. But those what he succeeded in in the combine is rarely successful in terms of predicting NFL talent and NFL ability. So his career high grade, which we found to be very predictive from college to pro, only ranked 149th in the nation last year. And he forced just three missed tackles after the catch. So we're talking his athletic skills on a, from a raw standpoint are there, but he's never really been able to translate that to the field. I mean, how often do you see players like that that are just freaks athletically that haven't quite put it together in college and just automatically do that? Do you think it's more often than not? Or can you even, I mean, I, I hate to put you in a corner on that, but do you, do you think that you see that as more boom or bust with these kinds of um, freakish athletes? I think the guys with the freakish athletic skills that put them on display when it comes time for it, you know, the so-called most important job interview of their life at the Combine, uh, you can circle directly back to John Ross. We had decent grades on him at Washington in the one year we had for him runs the fastest 40 time ever at the time. And, you know, he hasn't turned out as the NFL product that everybody thought he would be drafting so high. So I think that it's more often than not that a guy will come out of nowhere, at least, and show these freakish athletic abilities to be a bust than it would be the other way around. You have somebody like Miles Garrett, absolutely dominated the combine, but he dominated every year and every game's worth of data that we have from him to the point we've even gone back further and tried to get as much as we can on him because we want to know what what he did so well, and it's basically everything. So you have somebody like Miles Garrett who performed, and I don't think it was a question, he was number one pick, and then did super well and showed off those abilities. Whereas John Ross, he was okay. Lesser known Washington, obviously, for the majority of of the the NFL world that didn't watch Saturday football, uh, but then blows up at the combine and everybody wants to know who John Ross is, and then he hasn't, he's kind of fizzled out, so to speak. So I think it, to answer it without pulling exact numbers and yeah. using those two guys as a, as a case or, you know the scenario here it's i'd say more often than not these just freakish athletic guys would fizzle out so i mean in general um we talked about pro football focus grades everyone sees them on twitter you know it's on sunday night football every week and you guys you know get basically give grades on players each week and throughout the season where they rank as far as their position goes do do these grades take into account you know things like poor coaching or you know if if a if a offensive tackle was put in the wrong position to take on an edge rusher and things like that i mean i guess would a player be penalized for you know being put in the wrong spot or do you take those into account and, and grade on a curve when you put out uh, pro football focus grades that's a great question and it's it's actually we we do our best to isolate player performance on a per snap basis on the, at the individual level we don't get into the coaching decision grades or the coaching grades or anything of that nature. And we, you know, so we're not going to then penalize, say, a tackle for a wrong play call if, if he's been put in the wrong position or if he's been given, you know, an, an arduous task that can't be complete. So it's it isolates player performance on an individual play, individual player, and then per a per play basis. And that's all aggregated to a game grade and then a season overall grade as well. So tries to do our best here to isolate mm-hmm. without knowing the specific play call. That's always one of our biggest um any any opponent wants to say how do you grade without knowing the play call and that's where it comes into play it's it's individual performance you can tell watching a play what a player is trying to do and if he fails miserably that's a pretty that's a negative grade and it's pretty obvious and if he succeeds and succeeds well it's a positive grade and you know what he's trying to do when he does it 
For people that don't know, how much data analysis goes into every, you know, play, for example, like an offensive, defensive play for pro football focus? You know, and there's, I, it's a great question and, and we're catching up. I, I would say football analytics is definitely catching up to that, you know, Moneyball made it famous in baseball, but it's, it's football is getting there to the point that all 32 NFL teams are clients of us at PFF. They use our data in one way or the other. And on offense, defense, there's from player location data to to where they line up at the time of the snap to where they're at the end of the play. It's everything is tracked and everything is quantified on our end. So it's upwards of 180 or more data points per play. And every player gets a data point at least per play, even if they're not even involved. So it takes hours and hours and we have several different processes and we have analysts up watching games live. And then we have a whole team that reviews everything live. And then we have extra charts and extra processes. So it's, our grades actually aren't complete until 24 hours or so, or, or a little bit, maybe 20 hours. Now we've, we've gotten it down to after the game. Um, and so that's one of the biggest things that goes into our grades is that it's checked, it's reviewed, and then it's checked and reviewed one more time too. So wow. it's, there's a lot that goes into every single play and every single player on every single game too. So with the ninth pick in the 2019 NFL draft, the Buffalo Bills select Ed Oliver, defensive tackle, Houston. That was an easy one for the Buffalo Bills. Ian mentioned it. I had heard going up to three for either Quinnen Williams or Ed Oliver. And look, they were patient. They sat right where they were, and Ed Oliver fell right into their lap. They need some more pass rush. He's going to give them that from the inside, and they'll turn him loose. It was, it was frustrating, Kirk, to watch him on college tape. They would play him head up over the center, line him up blocked, as I like to reference it. This guy's going to get in the gap in a, on the edge of a guard, and he's going to be a nightmare for teams to deal with. Well, I know everybody loved Quinnen Williams, and rightfully so. He was Let's great. Go! This guy reminded yes, me more of Aaron Donald than yes, anybody in this draft. He is explosive. He's low. He can play with his hands. Let's go! The Bills filled a need and got what a lot would say was the best uh, player available at number nine. In defensive tackle, Ed Oliver out of Houston. Right now, Ed Oliver out of Houston, he becomes an instant upgrade at the position of three-technique defensive tackle. He can generate pass rush from the interior, which, based on the press conference after the pick, was something they've wanted for a while and uh, became a need when Kyle Williams retired. Um, and even though Bean basically said, he said this at the press conference, which was pretty cool, that someone asked him if Kyle Williams was still on the team, would he still have drafted Ed Oliver? He said, yes, absolutely. I mean, that just goes to show you how much the Bills thought of Ed Oliver as a prospect and how much they really, you could tell they really wanted him. But I mean, here, just to give you some perspective on Ed Oliver, this is what Pro Football Focus had written up about him. Uh, Buffalo gets an explosive Uber athletic defensive interior in former Houston standout Ed Oliver. He's a high floor run defender that should only get better rushing the passer as a primary three technique at the next level. And if you've listened to our podcast or listened to other podcasts out there, three technique defensive tackle is is a huge, huge um, part of the defensive scheme that Sean McDermott runs. So he was he had the second overall grade among all. Uh, interior defensive lineman. He had the third best pass rush grade among interior defensive linemen, the second best run defense among all defenders, which is a pretty great stat right there. And then the fifth best pass rush win rate among um, defensive tackles. 
All by all accounts, he was showing NFL talent right is a true freshman. What what strikes me is a lot of the guys that came before him and will go in the first round. You didn't hear about them for three years, right? Yeah. It's yeah. been oh, and then last year they had a, a breakout year. Oh, since the combine, they've got these these skills X, Y, and Z. They've got the numbers. But with Oliver, you've seen the talent for three solid years, and it's just a much bigger sample size yeah. than some of these flash in the pan guys that people take they get enamored gms or coaches right um they get enamored with this the talent they reach and mm-hmm. it doesn't translate to yep. the pro level and they basically said sean murphy wrote in this article he said the buffalo bills use a ninth pick the 2019th nfl draft is select talented defensive tackle at oliver um Oliver, 21, exploded onto the scene in Houston as a freshman in 2016, dominating the American Athletic Conference to the tune of 65 tackles, 22 tackles for loss, and five sacks. Jeez. Over his three-year collegiate career, Oliver was a constant disruptive force in the backfield, totaling 53 tackles for loss and 13 and a half sacks. Now, while his junior season was his least productive, Oliver possesses a rare combination of athleticism, boasting size, strength, and quickness that will make opposing offensive lines fearful for years to come. Now, this was this was pretty cool because we were watching highlights of him being double teamed and still knifing through the offensive line, still making tackles in the backfield to running backs, still getting into the the quarterback's face. I, the, the guy, they were saying, you know, I mentioned earlier pro football focus. They're saying one of his things that he has to work on is pass rush, um, but he's already improving on it. And he was still one of the highest rated guys in the NFL. That's he's his floor is still great. And they still think he can get better, which is unbelievable. A big, Buffalo, welcome to Ed Oliver. Go Bills. Lindsay D'Arcangelo of The Athletic on Josh Allen and Supercade. Uh, you did a wonderful piece for The Athletic about quarterback Josh Allen and his relationship with 13-year-old Kate Spinello. For those that don't know the story, can you please tell the listeners who Kate is and how he and Josh met? Sure, sure. I'll, uh, I'll do a little summary. Uh, Josh and Kate met about three years ago josh lives in or actually both of them live in california but cade um is a is a 13 year old boy who when he was five was diagnosed with a benign brain tumor um and uh, even though it's not cancerous or it's not malignant it still is cancerous but even though it's not malignant it's still growing it's still spreading and it affected his uh vision uh really badly so they were trying to uh, do an operation to get it out and it caused uh, he had a stroke that caused uh, paralysis on the right side of his body um, and so basically ever since he was five and like I said he's 13 now it's been eight eight years of him just doing rehab and physical therapy and he can only see out of um, he's fully blind in his left eye and he can only see out of half of his right and um, it's just been you know for a kid that age it's been a struggle and he's because he is considered a cancer survivor. He's part of an organization called um, Never Ever Give Up, and the, the short form of that is NIGU. And uh, it's an organization that Jordan Palmer is part of. And Jordan Palmer, is, as you may know in your audience, you know, is kind of a QB guru for up-and-coming QBs, NFL prospects. And uh, Jordan worked with Josh. So he would 
Jordan would bring kids from this organization to come hang out with these creepy prospects and just throw the ball around and just kind of be out, be out and around uh, being, you know, physical, being kids. And that's when Josh and Kate first met. And like I said, that was like, three years ago. But about a year ago when Josh was out <clears throat> with Jordan training for the, um, the NFL combine and then the NFL draft, he and Kate just started spending more time together. And so from there, they really developed uh, a genuine friendship that, that has blossomed since. So you mentioned that it's been eight years since Cade had the tumor removed. Uh, what does he still work on and fight with on a daily basis in his therapy? Well, he had part of the tumor removed. Part of it still remains, so it wasn't a full uh, remote removal and so he still has to deal with the effects of that he um he can raise his right arm um, about shoulder length uh he has no hand movement in his right hand which he's still uh working on so he's still working on physical therapy he can he can walk but he um he's still trying to figure that out with his right leg he wears a brace um he often trips a lot because of that and then with his vision he's learning uh how to read braille um so there are those things that he continuously works on as a result of uh, the the tumor and, like I said, the stroke that he had uh, during the operation. Did you see that when you interviewed interviewed Josh, that Josh actually looks up to Kate as well? Oh, yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I sort of tried to frame it that way, that this is, um, this is a give-and-take relationship. It's not just Kate looking up to Josh and Josh kind of sort of throwing him a bone. It, it, it goes both ways. I think Josh is just very amazed he, he may have never come across a kid like Cade before, and I don't think a lot of us do in our d- normal daily lives. And so he was very amazed by how much work um, Cade puts in to just getting better and better each day. And it makes him want to apply that to his own life, to his own career. And, um, you know, he he said he, he looks at it like, well, if Cade can do this, then I can get through this practice or I can get through this. Um, weight session, whatever the case may be. I mean, you just mentioned Cade coming to Buffalo. I mean, how welcome has Cade and his family felt from the Pagulas and the city of Buffalo when they visited um, from their home in California? They loved it here. And I mean, they just, you could tell. I mean, I, so I did just do a phone call with them. I did a, a, a Skype call. So I got to see their expressions and everything. And they just were we're literally beaming about Buffalo. They joke that they want to move here. They just felt, you know, very embraced by the community and, and just by, by the Pagulas and everybody involved in the Bills organization and Josh himself. They just felt so very welcomed. And, um, yeah, they just, they love the experience and they said they can't wait to come back again. And they're all Bills fans now. I mean, this is just completely turned their, turned their world into, into Bills Mafia. Um, (laughs) there was this thought going around while Derek Anderson was here that he should be a player coach or whatever the hell that means for the Buffalo Bills and for Josh Allen and for the life of me I have no idea why you would want him as a player coach and why people and very a lot of people like even prominent people on Twitter we're saying, oh, it'd be nice if he could have a player advisory role or a player coach role. And, and the whole time I'm thinking, why? <laughs> why are we putting Derek Anderson up on this pedestal? 
what has he done to deserve this? I mean, not that I don't even like the guy. So I can't even say that without it making sound like I don't like the guy. I have no problem with Derek Anderson. I think he's a, f- I mean, he's not a fine player anymore. He's he's very old and he's clearly clearly past his prime. But I guess there's a lot of fans saying that he should be part of Josh Allen's development still and stuff like that. And to me, I guess my response is they have a quarterback's coach. They have Ken Dorsey. That's what Ken Dorsey's job is. Derek Anderson's job isn't to coach Josh Allen. And um, a lot of people's arguments to him being a player coach was that Allen talked so highly about Derek Anderson as a player, as a pro, and learning a lot from him. And it's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. You, You realize, though, that every rookie that's ever came into the league has always talked about the veteran QB ahead of him or behind him like that. Like, I'm learning from this guy, or I'm learning from that guy. I remember Colt McCoy was doing the same thing in Cleveland for Jake Delhomme, and Jake Delhomme was awful and terrible at that point in his career. And But Colt McCoy was like, it was really great to learn from him. They always do that. We always say that, you know, about the guys ahead of us. That's just the way it was. And and I believe that Josh Allen actually thought that, because before him, ahead of him, was A.J. McCarron, who was never a starter, and Nathan Peterman, who should never have been a starter but was one. So, I mean, after those two guys, I mean, Derek Anderson is going to walk in like freaking Joe Montana (laughs) compared to that. So I do believe he was useful for what he is. But you cannot give him credit. You cannot give Derek Anderson credit for Josh Allen's progress during the season. You just can't. He was he's not the reason why Josh Allen had a good second half. The injury is what is the reason why Josh Allen had a good second half. It allowed him to step away from um a starting role that he shouldn't have been thrown into, that he was never meant to be thrown into. He was supposed to be the second string quarterback and Nathan Peterman was supposed to be the starter. And then within the first half of the first game, Josh Allen became the franchise quarterback and had to become the starter. They did not prepare him for that in training camp in the off season. He was not getting all first team reps with all wide receivers and running backs and offensive line like he should have. So he was not ready for it. So after four weeks of being injured and not being able to start, he was able to kind of acclimate himself to the pro game, to the players that he's playing with. Um, So I guess I have nothing against Derek Anderson, mind you. He's a fine person, I guess. But people were saying, well, he's the reason why uh, Cam Newton did so well in Carolina. And and I can see that's that's why Brandon Bean and Sean McDermott brought back Derek Anderson because the work he did with Cam Newton, but don't give Derek Anderson credit for the things that Cam Newton has accomplished in his career. Cam Newton came out as a number one overall pick after winning not only the Juco National Championship, but then he went and he won the national championship in Auburn against Alabama. This is was this was Nick Saban's Alabama he won against. So it's not like he came out of nowhere and all of a sudden he was like a seventh-round pick, and Derek Anderson helped him become the guy who he is today. I mean, everyone wanted Cam Newton. Remember, the Bills wanted him, but he didn't slip to three. But just don't give him credit for what Cam Newton has done, what Josh Allen has done, because he was in Arizona for a year. Let's not forget, he was in Arizona um, ahead of John Skelton that season, and John Skelton didn't do anything with his career, and he's out of the league. So if you're going to give him credit for Cam Newton and Josh Allen, then you have to take credit away for completely botching on John Skelton. Matthew Fairburn of The Athletic. Okay, great. Well, speaking of Josh Allen, should Bills fans buy into anything positive that Josh Allen does in OTAs? And is the Josh Allen OTA hype legit? You know, I think it's 
gotten a, a bit of bit out of control early on i mean the media has only seen two practices and he's been pretty good in those practices i wouldn't you know say he's been um you know a world beater by any means he's still made some mistakes he's still figuring things out but again in the context of what they're doing like i said they're installing systems they're teaching techniques they're trying things out they're getting guys on the same page i think that's where reading too much into it can be a little bit dangerous uh, in the case of a young quarterback. I mean, there's no contact from the defense. There's really not much pass rush at all. And so it's not really simulating what he's going to see on Sundays or even what he'll see, uh, you know, during preseason games. And so I think it's a little bit much at the moment. Now that's not to say that people shouldn't be excited about him showing positive signs. He looks a lot better right now than he did this time a year ago. Remember, this time last year, he was still with the third team offense. Uh, you know, the fact he's so far ahead, uh, you know, just having a full off season, uh, being with the same coordinator for the second year in a row, having what I think is a better quarterbacks coach, having new weapons around him and being able to get every single rep with the first team offense, as opposed to having to work his way up the ladder. I think all of those are very positive signs, but the results on a throw by throw basis and the um, kind of you know, overhyping of, of every good thing he does can be a little bit dangerous because in any, the development of any quarterback, any player for that matter, there's going to be ups and downs, especially during practice. And when we only get snapshots of it in the spring, you can't really piece together the full picture like you can in training camp and in the preseason. So I think that's where it gets a little bit out of hand just because we've seen two out of, you know, six now today was the seventh practice. So We've only seen two of them. We'll get a third one tomorrow, and, and each you know practice provides a little bit of evidence, a little bit of clues, but doesn't really give you the full picture. I mean, when should Bills fans be excited for positive reports? Should they wait for training camp, preseason games, or is the regular season the only true test, in your opinion? I mean, I think you can be excited. Uh, you know, that's a whenever whenever you want, really. I mean, it's kind of a. a personal thing if you want to be excited about what he's doing in the spring i think there's reason to be excited about the progress that he's shown about the position that he's in uh the reps he's getting and and the players he has around him uh same goes for training camp i think you take it all with a grain of salt in terms of knowing that practicing well doesn't mean he'll play well uh if you want to get excited and be sure that the bills have a franchise quarterback and a guy that, you know, you can trust is the long-term answer. I don't think you can really make that determination until you see him play in games. I don't think anything he does in May, June, July, or August is going to convince you that he's a franchise quarterback. It's going to have to happen, you know, during the regular season. And ultimately, you know, ideally, you know, the, the arguments and conversations around Josh Allen will, you know, end up with, he'll have to perform in the playoffs, right? I mean, you know, it's been a while since Bills fans have even had to hold a quarterback to that standard, um, you know, of performing in the playoffs because they've struggled to get there so often. But that, you know, becomes the true uh, mark. I mean, I think about all the arguments that happened in Detroit over Matthew Stafford. I think, you know, if the Bills had had Matthew Stafford for the last 10 years, they'd be pretty happy. But <laughs> there's a lot of Lions fans who don't think he's the guy because he hasn't really gotten it done in the playoffs. So, uh, you know, there are people who would say even, you know, just getting it done in the regular season 
might not be satisfactory to prove that that he's the long-term answer. So I think that's where you know I'm coming from in terms of saying that the the hype is a little bit um, you know out of control because he's had two practices in May of his second season. He hasn't performed um, at a franchise caliber level uh, in the regular season. He hasn't, you know, gotten the team to the playoffs. I mean, there's so many steps, and I know a lot of people are eager um, and and anxious to see what this kid can become because he is so talented, and he probably has more promise than any quarterback this team has had in 15 or 20 years. But there's a lot of steps he has to take to get there, and you know the the evolution and and the process that goes along with that uh, is all part of it. So it's going to be a, a long journey where you don't really have answers right away. And that can be uh, tough as a, a football fan, as you're trying to figure out, you know, what this kid is and, and you're trying to determine the answers. But, you know, like I said, the best case scenario is that, that you're, argue, you're having different conversations a couple of years from now, because you look at some of the quarterbacks that have come before Josh Allen and, it's taken only a couple of years for the team to realize that that person isn't the franchise quarterback. So as long as he's continuing on the upward trajectory, there's plenty of reason to be excited. And, and that includes in training camp preseason. And then obviously the ultimate test comes when they start playing real games. Development wise, do you think that Josh Allen gets more freedom from Brian Dable in the offense in his second year? Meaning could you see, Josh Allen potentially switching plays at the line and changing hot routes on wide receivers based on the coverage he's seeing? I think so. I, I think that should be the goal. You know, a guy in the second year of a system with a full off season uh, of trying to understand what he's doing and, and working with a lot of the same players, I think he should be able to make those adjustments. And it sounds like Brian Dable's putting some of that on his plate here in OTAs. He mentioned that, you know, he let him, call call a series basically in the no huddle and those are the types of things like i said you know maybe we see that and don't get the context and you know maybe he the first couple times he does it he doesn't do great with it but in the long term it benefits him you know so i think they're going to try some of those things out they're going to put more on his plate this is you know the first time i can think of in a while where they've had a quarterback who they want to invest you know, that time and that development in, and he's going to get all the reps. It's a, a very beneficial situation for Josh Allen and, and his development. And the more they put on his plate during the off season, the better, because I think you're going to want your quarterback to have that command of the offense and that freedom and flexibility, especially given the way that Josh Allen handles himself. I, I think the way that he plays, he, he is a bit of a freestyle quarterback. He he's, willing to break contain and, and get outside the pocket and make plays happen. And so you want that aggressive, you know, nature, that competitive nature. And if he sees something at the line and feels confident in what he's seeing, I think by all means they should give him the freedom to go out there and, and he will make mistakes. You know, it's going to be his first full season as a starting quarterback. So there are going to be moments where, you know, he's, he's a little bit in over his head, but I think, the more you give him, the the more comfortable he'll be. Um, and over time, he should have a better command of how to handle all that. So you wrote a great piece for The Athletic recently about Sean McDermott and the culture he's trying to create. Now, you've covered many different coaching staffs while reporting on the Bills. 
Is his approach truly unique to past coaches, or are they all pretty similar? I definitely think Sean McDermott is a little bit different. I, I don't think he's, you know, revolutionary or, you know, completely innovative in his approach. But in terms of what we've seen from past coaches, um, I've covered Doug Marone and Rex Ryan here. Um, and in college, I covered Gary Pinkle at Mizzou, which college is a different animal, but still kind of the same approach. Uh, in terms of building a culture and, you know, building a team. And McDermott's different than all of them. He's obviously, you know, basically the opposite of Rex Ryan. I mean, you know, the in terms of the strict, you know, just the way that he, you know, is disciplined in his own life, uh, Sean McDermott, that is, is a lot different than Rex Ryan. But I think you also see players respect him seemingly a lot more than they did Rex Ryan and Doug Marone. And it's for different reasons. Obviously Rex Ryan was well liked in a lot of ways, but his approach didn't work with everybody, you know, and he, he was a player's coach, but he was also a little bit bullheaded in the way that he went about things. And, uh, you know, it was just, it didn't work for a lot of players. Obviously you saw Mario Williams lash out a little bit and he wasn't alone in that locker room, you saw a lot of guys, you know, speaking anonymously or, or behind Rex's back about things. Doug Marone, I think was a little bit different because he was obviously not a player's coach in most ways. I think he's changed a little bit uh, down in Jacksonville, but not necessarily a player's coach and a little bit overbearing at times. And I don't think that worked well with certain players in the room either, but Sean McDermott seems to have found a balance. He's not obviously Rex Ryan where he lets guys do whatever they want and brings in, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, troublemakers and, and tries to just, you know, make it all work. But he's also not overbearing the way Doug Marone was. He tries to understand guys on a individual basis and he's constantly trying to figure out different ways to get through to guys and, the main thing is just trying to build a, a culture where everybody's motivated to be improving every day and everybody's motivated to, you know, kind of be all in on the common goal and, you know, getting guys to buy in and making sure your message doesn't become stale is not easy to do. And I haven't seen a coach and granted, I haven't been around. It's not like I've you know been around, um, you know, guys who have won Super Bowls or anything, Marone and, and Rex Ryan weren't uh, the gold standard, but mm -hmm. I haven't seen a coach command the respect uh, of the guys in the room more than McDermott has. And the, you can see it in the way that when things are going wrong, when they go on losing streaks, which they have uh, in each of his first two seasons, he's found a way to turn things around mid season, which is uh, a lot easier said than done. And, and it takes a coach who can, you know, get through to players and, you know, his message can continue to get through to them even when things aren't going well. So uh, I think it's it's promising. Obviously, there's more to being an NFL head coach than just, you know, motivating guys and creating a culture. You need to, you know, deal with uh, lineup decisions, in-game strategy, roster building and everything else. But I do think the way that he goes about motivating guys and, and creating a culture has been a huge positive impact on this team. So from what you're saying, when you've seen the way that 
McDermott has implemented uh, a new culture, trust the process, other types of slogans like that, and other types of pieces to this whole team. I mean, do you, there's some people that say culture doesn't matter at all, and it doesn't sound like you agree with that whatsoever. But, um, but I mean, after your talks with like players, I mean, on the record and off, does that really resonate? Now, I know you've said you've seen it, but does it actually resonate with them in your talks with players on and off the record? I think it does. And I, th- I think part of that is, you know, bringing in the types of players who it will get through to, you know, I mean, they've built a locker room of guys who are uh, somewhat like-minded in that way. They already have that, you know, they, they like to use the phrase, the DNA, um, which is kind of a, a weird way to put it, but that, you know, the, they're going after guys in the draft and in free agency that, already are of that growth mindset and, you know, of that, you know, that mental makeup to handle that type of coaching and that type of, of culture. They're not going to be perfect in bringing in those types of guys. Obviously you're going to have some, some different guys, but I think a lot of people mistake culture for, you know, bringing in all nice guys. That's not really what it's about. I mean, it's about, um, you know, having everybody pushing in the same direction, having everybody, you know, excited to work for the guy next to them and work for the guy in charge, as opposed to, you know, having infighting and everything else. I think, you know, is the importance of it overstated by some? Maybe, but I think the idea that it doesn't matter at all, I think is a little bit, um, you know, misguided, especially in football, when you have so many guys who could at any moment be pulling in any number of directions for any number of reasons, getting guys on the same page and pushing towards a common goal is, is not easy. And, um, you know, sustaining success, I think requires having some sort of stability and and culture in place. And that's where, you know, there's, there's a reason for some optimism in terms of what Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean have done. Obviously the results haven't quite been there yet and they're, a long way from from getting where they want to be but i think you know the the foundation that they've established is a healthy one and it's one that i think they can build on in the years to come okay great this is purely just for my information since i'm a non-media member um how often do you talk to players off the record percentage wise is it like 50 50 or is it mostly off the record and they only let you use a few quotes I would say it's probably probably more often on the record just because of the nature of okay. of the job is mm-hmm. we're in there every day and um you know when you need to get work done you need sometimes you need on the record quotes and there's mm-hmm. all sorts of press conferences and everything else but during the season there's there's definitely plenty of time for that off the record you know type of conversations as well where you know you you want you don't want every conversation to be an interview. You know, you don't want every conversation to, to have a microphone and a notepad because, um, you know, then guys don't really, you don't establish that human connection as easily. So that's what, that's more, there's more time for that during the season because, uh, you know, we have open locker room for 45 minutes, you know, Wednesday through Friday, and that allows for, you know, more relaxed setting than, Um, you know, when we don't have open locker room, it's like, well, this guy has five minutes before he goes in the room. You don't have time for small talk if you need quotes or whatever. So it's a, it's a little bit of both. It's, um, you know, it all depends on, 
you know, the, the player, um, obviously not every player is going to, going to be interested in talking to you, um, you know, off the record, they're not interested in small talk or whatever else, but that's an important part to, to everything. Because then when it comes time to, you know, post game, you need on the record, you know, comments or, or you're just working on a certain story, having that relationship and that understanding makes those on the record conversations all the more productive. Okay, great. I appreciate your insight on that, by the way. Um, so do you think, so going back to Sean McDermott, um, do you think his quest to always learn more can lead to him being a better in-game coach and making better in-game coaching decisions as opposed to just creating locker room culture? You know, that was probably my lingering question after I wrote that story, because I was curious, uh, you know, going into it because he had mentioned, you know, he reads a lot and he's always listening to books on tape or podcasts or, or whatever else. And a lot of the, the books that he reads are leadership books uh, and things of that nature, which almost leads me to believe that, you know, the answer to your question is no, because mm-hmm. I don't know what you're going to find in those books that are going to necessarily change your thinking on strategy or anything else. Now, if you were, you know, reading books like uh, Astro Ball about the Houston Astros and their analytics approach or different things like that, then that would spark my curiosity even more because I might think, okay, what is, what's going through his brain? And I can't say for sure that, you know, he's absolutely not going to uh, develop as an in-game coach, but I think that's probably the biggest question uh, facing him and his coaching career right now is can he, you know, when the, pressure's on and bullets are flying can he change what seems to be ingrained in him as certain philosophies uh, in terms of being conservative or whatever else i'm interested to see if he can adapt and maybe some of these books he's reading or people he's talking to some of those ideas will cause him to look he's always evaluating himself and his team and how they operate and what they're doing and so if he's looking honestly at that i think he would would you know consider making some changes but it's easy to do that in the off season and to do it on paper and understand the the math of it all or whatever else but then when it comes to in game uh you know and the pressure's on and it's a snap second decision you know i think that's where mistakes can be made and that's why a lot of teams have somebody in the booth you know who's feeding them that information in real time so to try to take the the bias out of it and take the emotion out of the decision. But uh, it's not easy when, you know, you're on the sideline in a football game and it looks, it looks easier from your couch than when you're on the sideline and, Mm -hmm. you know, there's, you know, 60 guys around you and uh, a whole bunch of coaches and staff members and the crowd's going wild and, and you're trying to focus uh, on making the best call. It's, it's a tough gig and and he's shown that he's a good play caller on defense when he's taken over those responsibilities. He's shown he can make some adjustments at times in game. Um, But you know, the evolution in terms of game management is certainly ongoing and um, we'll probably get a better taste of it when they're in, you know, higher pressure and bigger profile games than they have been the last few years. Buffalo bills, defensive end, Mike love. So last time we talked, It was right before the third preseason game last season. And unfortunately, after a good preseason, you were released by the Bills at roster cutdown. Now, can you take us through what you went through and how that all transpired? Yeah, uh, 
Well, at first, you know, uh, after the last game, uh, they kind of, you know, call you in and stuff and, uh, you know, let you know what they're going to do with you and uh, as far as everything. And going in, you know, I always had a positive mindset on it because, uh, you know, uh, that's one thing I always live by. It's just stay positive no matter what. Uh, so going in, uh, I didn't know what to expect. Uh, you know, honestly, thought I had a pretty good preseason. And when they told me they were going to, you know, cut me and sign me to the practice squad, uh, I wasn't relieved or, you know, kind of happy, uh, but I was still grateful, you know, for the opportunity for them to want to develop me uh, before they put me on the roster. So uh, it was kind of a good experience, I would say, because, uh, you know, just as far as the whole getting cut process, uh, I guess that's just part of the NFL that before you get signed to practice squad, they need to cut you uh, mm-hmm. for any uh, other teams who want to, you know, sign you up or, uh, get you off the ravers is what they uh, call it. But um, uh, it was, uh, like I said, I think it was a good experience for me because uh, just seeing the side of business of how everything works out. And, um, you know, I didn't like getting cut and uh, getting on practice squad, but I knew that uh, it was going to make me a better person. It was going to make me a better player. Uh, so, you know, I took it. I was uh, positive about it. Uh, I was happy. And, uh, you know, I worked my butt off once I uh, got signed to the practice squad. So in week 14, you were activated to the 53-man roster, and in week 15, you were active for the first time ever in a win against the Lions. Talk about that experience, if you could. Oh, man, I just, the the day my agent called me, man, uh, I knew it was coming because, uh, you know, the Bills, they, you know, they told me that, you know, just keep working, your time's coming. Uh, you know, I always prayed on it. Um, you know, I'm real close with uh, God in, uh, in my walk, and, uh, I believe he shows me favor, you know, as I seek him and I continue to seek him. And, and I think he was showing me favor by, you know, letting me have those four games to be fortunate to get accredited season in the NFL, which is, uh, you know, big time. So, I mean, when I got that call from my agent, man, you know, my eyes just lit up and, you know, I was excited. But, you know, my mindset was still the same and I was just to continue to work, continue to uh, grind and, uh, you know, con- continue to stay motivated and, uh, push through and uh, just uh, put, like I said, put my best foot forward and, you know, just didn't change anything. You know, it was just every day a mindset to go into work and, and, and be playoff caliber and just uh, work my butt off. So, and then when uh, the first game I wasn't active, uh, which I was okay, I was okay with. And then the second game I got active and i tell you, man, I was nervous at first, but, uh, it all worked out, man. I had a, a pretty solid game. Uh, the game was a little fast for me at first, but I adjusted quickly. And, mm-hmm. uh, man, I was just so grateful for that opportunity uh, to get the uh, those four games and just to be active, you know, uh, at a home game at that with the wonderful fans we got, man. I mean, they – I would I would say my nervous uh, – my nervousness, like, calmed down just hearing the uh, fans and just hearing, you know, how hyped they were in the game. And it was a great game. We uh we heard the shout, you know, let's go Buffalo. So you know that that had a huge part in me, you know, calming me down. And uh, you know, I just love the city and love the fans, and that was a big part of uh, you know, just me being with ease in the game. Now we had talked about the Bills Mafia and the crowd and everything last year, but you hadn't really experienced till up until no. that point. I mean, was it everything you thought it was going to be, or did it feel like you were back at college? No, nah, definitely not in college, especially when I'm uh, uh, you know some of the uh, places I played at. Uh, I mean, it's just a wonderful atmosphere, man. I mean, they're all into it. I mean, it's like, I would say it's like a college town, to be honest, but you still feel that in the, 
that NFL atmosphere. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it, it's just like I love it, man. I love how they cheer. I love when we score and they they do the shout uh the shout song. Yep. I mean, it's a wonderful experience, and it it wasn't it, it was everything I thought it'd be as far as the atmosphere of uh you know uh, how uh, just alive they were. You know, after last season happened in the 2018 season what did the coaching staff tell you to work on in this offseason to better prepare you uh this offseason you know they want me to work on my overall strength uh continue to keep my speed uh uh, continue to keep my head right um you know and just uh come in ready to compete come in ready to work and uh you know just you know be a little more explosive and and uh just basically overall strength and uh that's some of the things i'm working on right now Gotcha. Now, pass rushers in the NFL seem to have their own unique way of getting after the quarterback. Some guys are speed guys. Some guys are power guys. How do you describe your pass rushing style? Man, I would tell you it's not all over the place, but <laughs> I uh, I like a lot of things, man. Uh, you know, I love speed, uh, but then I love a lot of counters, and uh, I'll switch it in with some power. And uh, that's another reason why I'm uh, here on offseason right now working on my overall uh power in my lower leg so I could develop that asset uh, for the power side. You know, I have the speed, I have the counters, mm-hmm. uh, which are my, my main uh, assets now, but I'm just working on a little bit more power to, just to add more tools to my toolbox. Okay. Okay, great. So um, it feels like rookies have a, a ton of things to deal with in preparation for the draft, things like the combine, pro days, etc. Mm-hmm. How huge is it in your second year to not have to worry about any of that this offseason? Oh man, it's it's. I will tell you, it's very awesome uh, because when you come out of college, you don't stop working, and uh, you don't stop working after you get drafted or signed free agent drill uh, deal, and you, you just you know you continue to work, and then uh, you know training camp, preseason games, and after you make the team a practice guy, you're still working. So you that that whole year after your college, you can you literally are working. So I think it's kind of nice to have uh, you know four months off completely uh after your first season uh and a couple the first couple of weeks it's just nice to get away and just to relax and you know calm down and get your you know your body back right and just basically heal with rest Mm -hmm. but then it's also good and important that we got so much time to work on the necessary things that we need to you know better ourselves as a player and mentally so i feel like that time is just very valuable and uh uh, we're very grateful. To, I'm very grateful to have all that time, man, because, you know, it just gives you a lot of time to work on a lot of things, man. So mm-hmm. it's really, uh, it, it, it's nice. I'll yeah. tell you that. It's nice. So last season, you kept talking about your why and how everyone needs one to compete at your level. Has yours changed at all from last year to this year? Uh, my why is still my mother. Uh, she's such a hard-working woman. You know, she raised four boys by herself, you know, uh, and I admire her for her hard work and everything that she's done for us. So she's still my why, but I've developed another one, and, and that's Christ. I got closer to him, and uh, I recently got baptized in November, to, uh, you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I've got closer in my walk, and I think that's helped me uh, spiritually, and it's helped me become a better man and also uh, a better pers- uh, better family member, better uh, community le- leader, better teammate, um, you know, better friend, and you know, it's really been helping me. So, you know, I'm really doing it for her, and I'm and I'm playing for him as well. Okay, great, great. Well, let's switch gears and talk about the players on your on the team that you compete and work alongside with. So, we've briefly discussed the defensive end room. How does your teammate Trent Murphy look this season? And do you see a difference from last season when he was battling injuries? 
Yeah, I mean, Trent Murphy looking like he's 21 right now. He's looking <laughs> good. Uh, you know, he's move, he's moving really, really well, and uh, I think it'll be a, a big season for him. I, I have to ask you this, since you've seen Josh Allen up close and you came into the league at the same time as him, is he as much of a leader in the locker room as he appears to be when the cameras are on? Oh, definitely. Yes, sir. Uh, he's a good leader, and uh, especially when I beat him in ping pong, but you know, we ain't going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny. Is he able to to take a loss pretty well that way, or is he still is, is he kind of stubborn? Does he get upset? I ain't gonna comment on that because uh, <laughs> I'm not the, I'm not the only one who wins. I lose sometimes too. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good. Well, you literally went from being an undrafted rookie to potentially being a major part of the def- starting defensive line rotation going forward. I mean, do you ever? have a chance to sit back and look at how far you've come or do you just you you can all, all you can do is just keep your eyes forward exactly man and i believe i'm a big believer in that it's just you know you always got somewhere to be and i think there's always more you know and uh i'm a big believer in you know when you make it somewhere you know you always you always can go higher you know what i mean you mm-hmm. always can continue to grow you always continue to get better so uh, I try not to you look back, even though it's encouraging. Don't get me wrong. I don't just sit there and ignore it. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's always more work to do, even if you're at the highest level and um, in a rotation spot for, you know, starting job and stuff. It's, you know, you just keep working, man, and, and, and don't look back and just, you know, just move forward and just go straight. Michelle girardi Zumwalt, supervising producer of Pagula Sports Entertainment and Embedded Season 2. And I'd like to start off our discussion with your work as a producer with NFL Films. Now, how much different is your work between a show like Embedded, which you're working on as a Bills employee, as opposed to Hard Knocks, where you weren't employed by the team? Well, it's different in a lot of fronts. Um, you know, when we work on when we worked on Hard Knocks, you go in as a group of outsiders who don't have any prior, typically prior relationships with the players, the coaching staff. And you have to come in, try to get them to trust you. You're, the staff is so much bigger that you're kind of in every room, in their spaces at all times. Whereas with Embedded, the, the team already knows, you know, our staff, our crew, they're already familiar with us. We already know their stories. So when we show up in the locker room, they're not looking at us or, or thinking too much about it. We just kind of blend in a little bit more. And of course, we're also thinking as Bill's employees or as Bill's staff members, we want to tell a great story that reflects uh, well on our franchise. Um, but what I like about Embedded is that we do have that kind of prior relationship with the players and we, we can kind of get to the heart of the better stories because, you know, we already know them and know their stories. Okay, great. So what would you say is the biggest difference in tone between the two series and what you're producing on one as opposed to the other? Well, I mean, I think everybody kind of knows Hard Knocks now is the series where they introduce players and get you to love them in order to watch them get cut in, you know, episode five or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and they, they do tell positive stories on, on Hard Knocks. Um, I loved working on it. I think it's a great show and a great insight for fans. But with Embedded, you know, I'm not saying that we're just telling a completely positive story because, you know, how much fun is it to watch only the good stuff? We want to get in there and show you truth and, and a little bit of the grittier side of it, but... Um, you know, we want to really show team or show fans how great this team is, how great our players are, and the things, the positive things that we see in the office every day that the average fan doesn't get to see, and really, you know, put that out there for everybody to to be able to witness. 
So the first season of Embedded granted a lot of behind-the-scenes access to players and also the coaching staff and front office. Can fans expect that same level of access in season two, and can they expect anything different? Yeah, I mean, I think we get you get even more access in, in season two. Um, you know, last year we were in uh, a lot of team meetings, which was awesome. Um, I thought that was really cool access for fans to have that they'd never really had before. We were in Coach McDermott's meetings with his coaching staff, which was also really unique. This year, we get to go home with players. Uh, We went out to San Diego to visit Micah Hyde. And while we were there, there was a sort of family dinner with some of the players in between San Diego and L.A. that we got to to film. Uh, We went hiking with Shaq Lawson in Arizona. We are in uh, Brandon Bean's office when the uh, schedule release comes out. So, it's it's cool. There's there's a ton of little neat behind the scenes moments. Um, you know, players when they arrive back at One Bill's Drive, you know, for um, for voluntary workouts, they have these these cool um, events where they have obstacle courses and and tug of war. I think that um, you know clip just came out yesterday that everybody got to see. So mm-hmm. it's it's a lot of fun to see these things that like you never you never knew that the players were doing you know during these months. Very cool. So you and your team, I mean, besides Embedded, you guys have also produced some great work for Bills fans that include Playoff Caliber, End of the Drought, that documented the dramatic end of the 17-year postseason drought, and more lighthearted work like Trey White's Goalie Academy. So, I mean, how do you, as a group, come up with these ideas? I mean, what's that process like? <laughs> well, um, Trey White Goalie Academy is from the mind of Tredavious White, so that's... <laughs> We didn't have to come up with anything. He did all the heavy lifting. Um, uh, that one was we were shooting a Beyond Blue and Red, one of our other series with him, and when he was at the first Sabres game last season. And earlier in that day, we were trying to get the Bills players to, you know, say good luck to the Sabres and hey, you want to like try on some of Marty's goalie gear, his old gear, like for fun. And Tredavious just totally embraced it and went into this yeah. full character. Yeah. Thought he was a Louisiana high school hockey player. And then at that night, we're shooting his Beyond Blue and Red. He kept he kept staying in character with that. And we were like. Trey, we're we're here to get to know the real you. Like this is this isn't a joke. This is your beyond blue and red. Like this is your your dramatic moment here. And yeah. he, you know he gave us what we needed for that, but he also <laughs> just could not stop with this the Treyway Goalie Academy. So we got the footage. The editor was like, I have to put this in. Mm-hmm. We debated and then ultimately decided we wanted to you know keep it separate and do like a mockumentary. Mm-hmm. And then that's how that was born. And then the commercial after it was such a success, the commercial was just a natural follow up. And he had a lot of fun with that. Um, <laughs> And then uh, Playoff Caliber was inspired by Bills fans. Like, you know, everybody sending in their um, videos of of their reaction to the Bills making the playoffs after the drought. And, you know, we had so many of them. We made a shorter video right at the end of the season. And we decided it would be, you know, a great idea to expand that and do a special and you know, interview people and, and really, you know, turn it into something that we'll always have and always be able to remember. And it was a really special thing to work on. Yeah. especially after being in NFL films for 10 years before coming here and doing the Buffalo Bills highlight film at the end of every season, all these six and 10, mm-hmm. five and 11 years. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, we have to make the playoffs. And so it was really cool to finally be part of that. I appreciate everyone making it through to the end of the best of 2019 
off-season, pre-season of the Circling the Wagons podcast. Definitely want to thank everyone that was part of it, everyone that could come on and do an interview. There were lots of things I didn't even get a chance to get through, but I was uh, <laughs> didn't want to eclipse the two-hour mark on the podcast. So really appreciate you guys listening. For me, Nate, go Bills. We got one more podcast before the regular season, so looking forward to that, and I think we'll do a best of 2019 bloopers reel for that podcast at the end of it. So go Bills. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you guys again soon. Thank you for listening to the Circling the Wagons podcast. Download and subscribe to us in your favorite podcast service. Email us at ctwpod at gmail.com. That's Charlie Tango Whiskey Pod at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at ctwpod. And most importantly, go Bills! Nobody circles the wagons like the Buffalo Bills.